0: Hello everybody and welcome to episode 37, 12th century life, village, town and trade. So we spent loads of time talking about the great and the good and the religious, so what about people like you and me, the ordinary people, the workers? So that's what we're going to talk about today. But first off, let me make my two book recommendations for the week. The first is on Anglo-Saxon England and it's Asser's Life of Alfred. The edition I'm recommending is by Simon Keynes, and it's a compilation of contemporary sources from the time of Alfred. If you've any interest at all in Alfred the Great, you must read this book. Just Asa's Life, if necessary. It's really quite short, and the image of the thoughtful, compassionate king in a time of chaos and destruction is just compelling. The other book is on the social history theme, and it's called The Story of England by Michael Woods. Michael gives a complete history of England through the eyes of the people in one village, Kibworth. It's a great device because it allows you to really get close to real people in each period. But also he doesn't let it get restrictive. He goes outside the boundaries where it makes sense to do so. It's also a BBC show, by the way, and there's a DVD. All of these and other books are available through my website, historyofengland.typepad.com. Well, I thought I'd start slightly further back by reflecting a bit on the context on England's physical environment during our period because of course the economic conditions and so on had a major impact on the man in the lane. Now of course the English and indeed the British as a whole are famously keen to moan about the weather, and indeed pretty much everything. With our small world and ease of jetting off to Spain, the Mediterranean, South France and all around the world, you get the general impression that there are an awful lot of us that think the UK compares rather poorly with the delights of the outside world. Well, I'm not here to debate that, but to reflect that in the medieval world, the British Isles looked like a pretty good place to be. Clearly, a bit of a cultural backwater compared to Italy or France, and the weather is a bit variable, but our climate is warmed by the Gulf Stream and moderated by the sea. And from outside, would you believe, there were Europeans that looked at our climate and topography, and they envied us. So here is a Flemish monk talking about how good we have it. There stretch before you the most fertile fields, flourishing meadows, broad swathes of arable land, rich pastures, flocks dripping with milk, spirited horses and flocks. Groves and woods are in leaf, field and hill full of acorns and woodland fruit, rich in game of all kinds. I could go on, and Goshena did, but you get the idea. A desirable location. Sounds like Eden, in fact. In addition, the climate was somewhat different in the 12th century. At some point, around the 11th to 13th centuries, England went through something called the medieval warm period, which was to be followed by the better known Little Ice Age of the late Middle Ages and early modern period. These days, global warming is a bad thing, capital B, capital T, but those days it was a good thing with the corresponding capitals. Average summer temperatures were about 1 degree C higher, overall rainfall was lower and the winters were milder. This gave us some practical goodies. We used to produce good wine here in England. Wine so good that William of Malmesbury claimed that drinkers do not have to contort their lips because of the sharp and unpleasant taste. High praise indeed. It meant that arable farming was successful at higher altitudes as well. Outside of climate, the topography of England was pretty much the same, of course. The variations would have been on the coast at some points with differences from silting and coastal erosion and that sort of thing. The Fenlands probably were the biggest difference. The Fenlands now, of course, are land, fertile, easy to cross, straight roads. In the 12th century, they were literally a marshland, with monasteries such as Crowland, Thorny and Ely sitting on islands. Working out the population of England is far from a doddle. Generally, we start from Doomsday in 1086 and make all sorts of assumptions, which you can either call educated or dodgy, depending on your basic mental outlook. I've followed my friend Robert Bartlett's numbering. All the figures in Doomsday are for the head of household, so we need to guess how many people on average there are in a household. Robert works on an average household size of 4.7 people per household. He doesn't record what it's like to be 0.7 of a person, but you know what I mean. So that gives us a population of around two and a quarter million in England in 1086. The breakdown's also interesting, or I think it's interesting... Uh, But please, the qualifications around all these figures are absolutely enormous. Everyone accepts that we are guessing here. So the completely spurious and entirely challengeable guess that I'm going to go with is a total rural population of about 2 million. But on top of that, there are maybe 120,000 that live in towns, about 1,000 monks, 10,000 clerics, and then their servants and dependents, bringing the total of the religious to about 50,000 plus about 30,000 aristos, and we get to something like two and a quarter million. The period all the way up to the Black Death is probably a rising population trend, again with a whole load of whining about how difficult it is to be sure and that sort of thing. It could well be that the population growth is of the order of 0.6 per year, and this would give a population in 1230 at the end of our period of 5.7 million. Estimates of population in 1348 vary as well, between 3 and 7 million, so given that I seem to be at the high end, let's go for seven million in thirteen forty eight. Okay? So if we got that, two and a quarter million in ten eighty six, about five point seven million in twelve thirty, and about seven million in thirteen forty eight. Now all that growth sounds good, doesn't it? We think of the Industrial Revolution, we think of an expanding economy. But the twelfth century isn't really like that. There are no radical changes in productivity, other than that driven by the better yields from the warmer climate. This growth in population came from expansion. One of the ways this was achieved was by expanding the area under cultivation. This is a process called assarting. Basically, a peasant tenant would be given the right to clear an area of woodland, and then they'd hold that land for a money rent. So this was good for the peasant, since this got him away from feudal services, and good for the community whose total land increased. But there was a limit to the amount of extra land available, and of course this extra land is very marginal, only just productive enough to use. Other things that happen are that land holdings get split up into smaller units, and also the trend was for the Lord to let out more of his domain land, and this might make for more efficient use of land. Plus also the size of the towns are growing, and they take up some of the population growth. But, given no great change in productivity, we have to assume that the population growth meant that more people were sharing the same pie and that therefore individual living standards probably fall. As ever, the distribution of misery would have been unequal. During the period, the extra population meant that food prices rise, particularly from 1,200. And at the same time, the number of people around meant that a lord or landholder could always find someone to do a job, so labour rates remained low. So real wages, in effect, fell. Now landholders therefore had a high old time. They had increasingly easy access to markets to sell their surplus produce through the growth in the number of towns. Prices were rising, so all the lord had to do was to sit back and watch the silver pennies flood in. The only problem was that many lords had given out their domain land to tenants for a fixed rent or a military service. So it was the tenant who was making all the profit curses. So what we see are those lords wherever possible taking land back into their own domain and directly managing them. This process reverses the trend that we'd seen earlier, that we've just talked about, where the Lord was letting out more of his land. Obviously, there's not necessarily a problem with that, but what's clear is that the people who really suffer from all of this are the people without land. These guys are now really living on the margin, with stable wages, but rising prices. OK, so now that I've painted that suitably miserable picture, let's talk about the life of 90% of the population. As I'm sure you realise, the overwhelming majority of people lived in the countryside, The vast majority of people are rural smallholders, making a living from the land. So it sounds pretty simple. Lord, churchman, peasant. Wrong. It's when we get to the peasantry that things get really, really complicated, with a whole load of shades of grey about what kind of peasant you were. At the very bottom of the social pyramid were slaves. About 10% of the population in 1066. By 1120, there are officially no slaves, so yay, give it up for the Normans and boo to the Anglo-Saxons. Having said that, in a lot of cases you'd have to struggle to tell the difference between a man called a bovarius or Oxman, and a slave. There were two main factors that determined your social status. Whether you were free, and how much land you had. The first was the biggie. 15% of the population were freemen, i.e. they owed no service to the Lord whatsoever, and for the freemen the world was, relatively speaking, your lobster. Having said that, in the words of the Eagles, freedom was just some people talking, if you didn't have enough land. But there's an interesting case where 38 peasants on royal land were moved, and they were offered the choice of land or freedom. 31 of those 38 chose to be landless and free, so you can see how important freedom was to people. Of the rest, i.e. the serfs, those who held their land in return for service to the lord of the manor, the biggest single group were the vilani, later to be called vilaines, literally villagers. Now these guys were about 40% of the population, and generally they held enough land to support a family, something between 15 and 30 acres. One step down from them were the Borders, or Cotters, who had the same legal status as the Villani, but didn't hold a full plot, and who were therefore always living on the margin. The worst off were the relatively small percentage of slaves, and those who held no land at all. I'm going to make a comparison to Anglo-Saxon England again, because I just am. Those Victorian historians who saw Anglo-Saxon England as the land of proud free men and the Normans as hideous oppressors are overstating the case, particularly as far as slaves are concerned. But the truth is that more people become unfree over the course of the 12th century. So what was the practical difference between free and unfree? To be unfree was to be tied to the land. Quite literally, you were not allowed to leave. If you tried to leave, the Lord said you were defrauding the Lord of the services you owed him. And royal officials would hunt you down. Villani could actually be given away, quite literally, they could be sold. Another difference was that the Villanus would have to spend two or three days of his week working the Lord's lands. Actually, things in this respect get worse in the 13th century as the law becomes more tightly defined. Now I'm going to read for you from a 12th century survey of an estate just to prove the case that I'm not fibbing and the kind of services they owed. So let's give it a go and see if it works. And this is the work and service of the holder of one vergate. One vergate is about 30 acres. From Michaelmas to the beginning of August, he works for two days in each week and ploughs for a third, except at Christmas, Easter and Pentecost. And from the beginning of August to the nativity of St Mary, which is the 8th of September, he works for three days each week. And from the nativity of St Mary until Michaelmas, he works every day except Saturday in winter he ploughs half an acre and sows it with his own seed. He harrows and reaps this as well as another half an acre in August. And he performs carrying services at his own expense and he makes malt from the Lord's corn and payments for rights on the common. He pays thirteen pence for house payment, four pence at Michaelmas and one halfpenny for wool. And he shall go on errands, but if he goes outside the county he shall be quit of his week's work except for ploughing. In August he gives one carrying service of timber and one work at the fencing and he performs two carrying services of corn in August. I'm going to stop there. But you can see there's a very wide range of services, a whole lot of stuff, which was a major burden and a major problem for any peasant wishing to improve himself. There was one chink of light. Throughout the 12th century it became possible for peasants to swap those services for a money rent as lords wanted to get a hold of more ready cash. The peasants are very keen to do this if they've got the opportunity because it frees them from those services and gives them some small chance at least of improving their lot. Now I don't know if you get turned on as much as I do by original documents like this but what I'm going to do is I'm going to type up that complete survey from that manor in Huntingtonshire from somewhere between 1154 and 1189 and I'm going to put it onto the uh, website for this episode. I know that means the server will probably go down from the mass of people going onto the website wanting to access that original document, but look, I'm going to risk it. Another mark of difference between the free and the unfree was the right to bear arms. When a master freed one of his peasants, the occasion was marked by a ceremony where, to quote, he should place in his hands a lance and a sword, or whatever the arms of freemen are. Freemen could also sue their lord in a court of law, and get this, villeins could not so the Lord could do pretty much what he wanted. If you wanted to be free, your Lord had to release you, or you could run away to the town, and as long as you stayed there for a year and a day, you would then be free. There's no doubt, then, that we're talking about a highly hierarchical and structured society, where life for at least the bottom 70% could be very hard indeed. But it is worth noting that we're not in a period of class struggle. There are no peasant uprisings such as we see in the 14th century. Maybe this is just a problem of communication, but by and large you have to think that while the times were relatively good and every aspect of society reinforced this philosophy, people got on with it with relatively little rancour. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The center of rural life was the village. It's easy to generalize and think automatically of the nucleated village being the only model. But as you'll remember from the Bits and Bobs episode, this isn't necessarily the case. Places like the South West and Kent were dominated by hamlets and widely distributed farmsteads. But basically a traditional nucleated village was the typical model. Actually there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that the 11th and 12th century was a period where in many parts of the country the nucleated village actually gets created, planned and laid out by lords, which is slightly surprising since we tend to think of these things just happening on their own and growing organically. Obviously all these villages varied in size enormously, but to give an idea of the scale, divide the doomsday population by the 13,400 places mentioned there and we get 168 people for each village. Crude, but it just gives you an idea of the size. Villages were laid out with a series of plots called crofts, if you came from Anglo-Saxon areas, and tofts in the Danelaw. Each croft would be somewhere between a quarter of an acre and a full acre, and surrounded by a ditch and a bank. The crofts themselves, once established, are pretty enduring, unlike the houses that were built in them. The garden would be entirely turned over to vegetables, and it's likely that even the gardens of the nobility held relatively few flowers and far more veg. Housewise, we're not talking the Ritz, or even the Travel Lodge, to be honest. Peasant houses are built of wood, and foundations are a fancy concept. This means, of course, that the house will rot pretty quickly, and they can't have lasted much more than a generation. In fact, just like a garden shed, you could actually move them around to a different plot at a pinch. The typical house, then, was something like 24 feet by 12 feet. Now, go into your garden and mark this out with a tape measure to actually have a look and visualise it. It's really not a lot of room. And in there, they might have a buyer attached to the house, or even as part of it. So look at the space you've marked out in your garden, and think about, say, five people living in that space, with a clay floor, unglazed windows with the shutters, and an open hearth in the middle of the room. Then, get your children together and talk to them about how privileged they are and all that sort of thing. You know, that traditional conversation, and you know they love it. You wouldn't find a lot in the house, either. There might be a table, a stool, possibly a chest. Sacks of straw covered with blankets or sheepskin would make a bed, and there'd be a few pots around. Now, I think we've covered the fascinating topic of medieval open field systems, so no need to go into that in any depth. Though, of course, do get in touch if you'd like to know more, or listen to episode 20. The Normans introduced no great changes into agricultural methods. There were some attempts to increase productivity by turning the two-field system into a three-field rotation, which of course reduced the amount of fallow land in any year. But there are no new methods of improving the land's fertility. I might mention just one fab fact. I always wondered why the strips in medieval fields end up with a ridge and furrow effect. As I was sitting outside a pub with my open-toed sandals and socks, gardening clothes and nursing my pint of real ale in a pewter mug, a bloke told me that peasants did this themselves because it gave them a higher surface area to cultivate. Robert Bartlett, Professor of Medieval History at St. Anna's University, says it's because the plough naturally tended to push the soil towards the centre of the strip, so it became raised in the middle. I leave you to choose between the bloke and Robert Bartlett, Professor of Medieval History at St. Andrews University. The other fascinating thing I'd like to tell you about is crop yield. This is a genuinely compelling topic because nothing illustrates the change in agricultural productivity and the green revolution quite so straightforwardly. The more reliable data about crop yield starts in about 1200 and tells us that wheat, for example, had a yield of about 3.6 to 4 to each seed sown. So think about that. Each seed you sow gives you up to four back. So you don't have to have many disasters to wipe out your gain. That kind of yield would give you about a quarter of a tonne per acre. Now modern farmers, by point of comparison, expect about 3.5 tonnes, 14 times as much. These levels of productivity meant that peasants were never far away from the edge and that famine was a distinct possibility. It was probably rare that people died simply of famine, but disease went hand in hand with malnourishment and it was the combination that could be deadly. I have no doubt, by the way, that we will come back to some good crop yield data at some future date. Put a note in the diary. The crops at the time were mainly wheat, barley for ale and oats for food or fodder. Livestock revolved around cattle, sheep, pigs, goats and horses. The most common by far was sheep, where the quantities are truly massive. The Winchester estate, for example, had 12,000 sheep. The Bishop of Ely's estate in 1086 had 13,400 sheep. The whole place was drowning in wool. Though the regional picture is varied, pigs are usually the next most popular. Now, I remember one particularly exciting party of my youth when I got caught by a particularly earnest pig farmer. My brain has blanked out most of the evening, but I do remember him telling me that pig converts food into meat the fastest of all the traditional farm animals. So there you go, fab factor number two. But most importantly, your pig allowed the medieval farmer to exploit the common woodland where the pigs would forage. Oh, and of course, they've got cute pink ears. Poultry-wise, the medieval yard would have a wide variety. Capons, chickens, geese, ducks, swans, herons, would you believe, cranes, coots, divers, pigeons, woodcock, pheasants and peacocks. Wow. Life revolved around the agricultural calendar, but also around the Christian calendar, which was festooned with feast days. In 1200, for example, there are 47 feast days, of which only 14 were optional. The start of the year was a matter for some debate. It could be the 25th of March, the Annunciation, or maybe Christmas Day, or it could be Easter, or the 1st of January. Customs varied, but at points the two calendars, agriculture and religious, came together. The great festival of Easter, for example, coincided with spring, which was also the start of wars, tournaments for the nobility and sowing time for the rest. Midsummer was celebrated on the 24th of June, by this time things could be very tight indeed. June was referred to as Hungry Month. All the food that had been kept and preserved over the winter was now running out. The new crops were not yet ready. High summer had two Marian feasts, the Assumption and the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin, and around these festivals the village was preoccupied with haymaking and harvesting. After the harvest preparations were made for winter and this is the time of plenty. The Anglo-Saxons called November blood month because the animals that could not be kept were slaughtered. And then midwinter, of course, coincided with Christmas and a feast to keep morale up. The festival of Christmas was over 12 full days and was marked by gift-giving throughout from the Lord. Payback time, though, was New Year's Day when the tenants gave a present back to their Lord. Presumably, if the Lord's wife had knitted one of those jumpers grandmothers loved so much, this was the time when the Lord got it back. So, as we've said, towns also grew strongly in the 11th and 12th centuries. Let's not carry it away here. Again, I think we've covered before how small these towns were by modern standards. London, during the reign of Henry II, reached about 25,000 people. Meanwhile, Mighty Derby, home of the UK's leading football team, had a poxy 600 inhabitants in 1086, so even Robbie Savage would have got a game back then. Growth meant both in the size of the towns and the number of towns. So by the end of the 12th century, the number of towns had doubled. If villages were all about agriculture, towns were equally all about trade. They served the surrounding countryside with things they couldn't make themselves, and they gave the Lord a way of making some more money. Everything you might try to do in a town has a toll attached to it. stallage, the toll for putting up a stall on market day, pavage to help repave the roads, tolls to cross a bridge into the town, lastage to bring a load into the town, all over the place. Life as a travelling merchant, therefore, was tough. As far as they were concerned, the European Customs Union would have been a dream. Nonetheless, the towns flourished and held a wide and varied array of craftsmen. Goldsmiths, tailors and dyers, weavers and fullers, blacksmiths, tanners, butchers, bakers, brewers and so on indeed, so forth. Their houses were crammed together in narrow plots that ran off the high street. Each would have had a separate privy at the bottom of the plot, attached to a cesspit lined with wood or stone that were periodically cleaned out. Urinal pots would be used in the houses themselves, though quite how we've got onto this topic, I'm not sure. Like the countryside, the houses were made mainly of wood, but by 1200 we're beginning to see some change in this. 30 of the houses in Canterby, for example, were made of stone by this time. Now all of these commercial people living cheap by jowl began to give the possibilities of collaboration against the impositions of the lords. So the formation of a baker's guild in London in 1155 allowed them to grind their own corn at their own mill, rather than having to do so at the lords. Guilds had existed in Anglo-Saxon times, but they were more open, and they did things like support people who were ill or cover religious duties. With the Normans they become exclusive and the liberties and concessions they gained were for members only, and exercised a local monopoly, which they'd often had to pay for. Over the course of the 11th and 12th centuries, the practice of the self-governing town becomes more common. There's an example in Leicester, in the reign of William I, and in Oxford in 1107. By these charters, the borough was granted to the Burgesses for an annual farm, and they were allowed to elect their own officials. The essence of all of this was freedom. So the Burgess, for example, was free from all the town tolls we're talking about, and therefore had a massive economic advantage over the incomer. All this growth in towns and population suggests a dynamic economy, and as we've said earlier, in general, this doesn't mean rewards for everyone. Nonetheless, from a contemporary viewpoint, the English economy was in many ways doing very nicely. The most important parts of the medieval economy were the really important things, food and clothes. Obviously, the trouble with these are that medieval man grows or makes a lot of them himself, but there are opportunities to trade as well. So salt, for example, is essential, but not all manors had salt pans and could therefore be traded from great centres of production such as Droitwich in Worcestershire. Grain could on occasion be exported and this happens reasonably frequently, particularly from eastern England to Flanders and Scandinavia. Herring was abundant off the east coast of England and was preserved by being salted and transported widely in England, particularly to monasteries, who had a need for large and regular supplies of fish. The biggest food import was wine. The biggest source for wine was France, although there were also wine merchants from Cologne in Germany. Merchants from Rouen were bringing wine into London in the early 12th century, and after 1154 the Angevin takeover starts a connection further south with Gascony, that's to be a feature of English history throughout the rest of the medieval period. Trade in metal was particularly important, given that it was a commodity available only in certain areas. I'm sure we talked about metals being mined at this time in England, lead and silver in Derbyshire, and the Mendips in Somerset and near Carlisle, iron ore in Northamptonshire and the Forest of Dean, and particularly tin from Cornwall and Devon, which was probably the largest metal export. The increase in tin production goes up 10 times between 1160 and 1214, so there you go. It was a useful cargo, since tin could be sold in Gascony, and therefore made a neat return cargo for all that wine. But the big one, the big cash crop, is wool. All those sheep had to be for something. There were two main types of sheep: the short, the small short wool, and the large long wool. The former were mountain sheep, and the best clip came from the Welsh border. The long-haired breed came from the Cotswolds, the Fenlands, and from Leicestershire. Most of the wool. From all of these flocks was made up into cloth in England, since homespun was made in most households. However, it's also clear that for high-quality cloth you needed experts, and weaving and dyeing high-quality cloth was a guildsman's trade. The market for this was all over Europe. Demand was driven, for example, by places like Florence, which prized English wool above African and Spanish merinos, which meant that the producer in England held an advantage and was able to charge a good price. The carrying trade though was dominated not by England but by Flanders and the Flemish towns also turned to manufacture. So a lot of the making up of cloth into garments happened there and they were then sold on by Flemish merchants. This relatively small share of the carrying trade was one of the factors that held the English economy back. Another was the relative lack of liquidity and credit. Remember that coin is still the greatest driver of the medieval economy coin in England is still good quality throughout the period despite a short interlude with Henry I which had resulted in the removal of the money as wedding tackle. Gold wasn't minted in England though gold coin circulated here but the number of pennies created was impressive annually up to three quarters of a million. But despite this coin was much more common in Flanders. The need for coin was a major pain in the backside. Silver pennies in any quantity are heavy At the great continental fairs in places like Champagne, systems of credit were slowly emerging, and again, coin was much more common. England had a reasonably strong economy, and was prosperous, but it lacked the sophistication of places like Italy and Flanders. Just to round this all off, spare a thought for the merchant. He basically falls outside of the medieval worldview, he doesn't really seem to be included in the people-who-work category. So not only does your medieval trader have to deal with the dangers of travel and of all the tolls and charges along the way, he has to deal with a pretty snooty attitude from most of society. Very few people engage in business who do not make money from other people's loss, said a Canterbury monk, and the princess in the Norman poem, Waldorf, says, I'm not a Burgess's daughter to change my love from man to man from their gold and silver. The economy is changing, but attitudes are changing much more slowly. So everybody, I think that's a good place to stop. I also, incidentally, think that's a good place to stop the focus on social and economic stuff and get back to some good old political history. But don't believe for a moment that I've forgotten all those areas we've not yet covered. Food and drink, travel, clothes, health, justice, all that sort of stuff. Fear not. I think what we'll do from here is sprinkle the social stuff into the political mix so we continue to get a bit of a combo. Hopefully that sounds good. So thanks to all of you for listening. Keep your comments coming on iTunes, Facebook, website, wherever. And hopefully, I'll talk to you all next week. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure. Everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.